And then, of course, Richard, I haven't even mentioned the case of gay marriage where the president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, of which I was part at that time, said, I want you to sit on the gay marriage case. Why should a gay man be prohibited from determining whether our constitution requires equality of marriage when your heterosexual colleagues can sit? He, it was a wonderful thing that president of the SCA, Craig Howey, did, and I still honor him for that. Welcome to The Enrichment Project, Path to Purpose, recorded by the mad talent at Solid Gold Podcast. It is a series of unfiltered and insightful conversations with some of the most remarkable purpose-driven human beings who have all achieved, created, inspired, triumphed or challenged. And we have a great deal to learn from them. It is a quest to uncover and articulate the steps along the way to help you on your own journey of purpose. I am your host, Richard Wright, and I am delighted to have you with me Thank you for the gift of your time. Let's dive straight in. Welcome back. This is part two. Edwin Cameron with me, uh, retired Justice Edwin Cameron. Um, Edwin, that first, uh, the first part of this chat is, uh, <laughs> it's almost like, wow, I need, to, I need some time to recover. I think I'm going to be emotionally wasted after this one. I can only imagine, in fact, just off the top of my head here, are there times when you have delivered a judgment, a particularly emotional or, or extremely important judgment that you have delivered and you've, you've literally left the bench feeling like you're exhausted? Yeah, it, it definitely happens uh, because I think there's no case that appears before any adjudicator, magistrate, judge, appellate judge, constitutional court judge that isn't of enormous importance to uh, individuals and to those concerned. And uh, look at Mr. Mankai. He mm. served in the uh, mines for most of his life and was let go back to the Eastern Cape, to the Trans Sky, with a severe pulmonary disease and given 16,000 Rand compensation. He brought a case, and my colleague, Justice Sisi Kampepe, gave the Mankai judgment, rightly famous. Wow which said that people who suffer in these terrible the silicosis and other pulmonary diseases on the mines must be given proper compensation. And the result after negotiations between the lawyers and the mining companies and the claimants has been a six billion rand fund. So that, that kind of case was where, where you know that you made a difference, mm. uh, where the court made a difference, where the law made a difference is very emotional. You've had a lot of those. Um, I've read with fascination um, a lot of the judgments that you have um, handed down and um, cases that you presided over, and there are just so many. In fact, I wanted to single out a couple, but it really isn't possible. There's so many. Um, if you look back over your career as a judge, and if you had to pick perhaps two of those judgments that, that where you feel you made the most difference, what would those be? Richard, I've mentioned Mankai. Another judgment by a colleague was from the Supreme Court of Appeal in Bloemfontein. And it's one that I still get emotional about because we initially split and we were five judges on this case. Mm -hmm. And the case concerned barring periods in law. And in law, 
you're supposed to bring a claim within three years of your being able to bring the claim, which means that you know about the claim and you know that you can do something about it. But what happened in this case was a young girl from the age of six was abused by an uncle, a wealthy uncle, and most abuse occurs. And for, I think, almost 10 years thereafter, he abused her, initially non-penetratively, later at about the age of 11, penetratively, every time she went, he scarred her life deeply. Mm. And only after the age of 40, could she come to terms with the fact that this was not her fault? The abused child, the only way to deal with the horror of what is happening is to say, this is my fault or I want it. And that is why it is so imperative that we protect children from cross-generational physical intrusion, which is child abuse. Yeah. And we held in that case, reversing centuries of law, that only when the survivor of child abuse comes to the realization that it is not her fault, she can bring the claim. She's got three years from that realization, even if it's 50 years later. Now, Richard, I want anyone listening to this podcast or watching this YouTube today to know if they've been abused and they've thought all along that they should not bring a claim because they're too ashamed. I want them to know that it was never their fault. It was always the adult perpetrator's exclusive fault. Mm. And I felt very emotional about that case. I felt very emotional about the last judgment I delivered on the last day of my retirement, which is 20 August 2019, last year. Mm -hmm. I felt very emotional about that because it concerned land rights. Mm. And this was a case where the Mandela government gave a wonderful statute. It said that if you're a labor tenant, First of all, you get security of tenure. You can't be chased off the ground like the landers as people were able to do for hundreds of years. But secondly, that little patch that where you grow your produce, your mealies, your vegetables, where you keep your livestock, your chickens and your cattle, you can apply to, if, if, if you qualify for that to become your own land. And 19,000 people applied for it. And what happened? Nothing. Okay. This wasn't apartheid's fault. This wasn't the evil white landowner's fault. This was the fault of the Department of Land Affairs, which for 20 years, through corruption, ineptitude, greed, misdirection, lack of efficiency, whatever it was, mm. did nothing. So we ordered in the Mwilase case, Mr. Mwilase, that a special master should be appointed to get this job done, this massively important job of 20,000 claimants mm. who could get that done. So that was also a very emotional case. Although um, from what I think I've read, it was too late for Mr. Malase to, he passed away. Um, Alas, yes, Richard, you're right. Alas, yes. And then, of course, Richard, I haven't even mentioned the, the, the case of gay marriage where the president of the Supreme Court of Appeal, of which I was part at that time, said, I want you to sit on the gay marriage case. Why should a gay man be prohibited from determining whether our constitution requires equality of marriage? 
when your heterosexual mm. colleagues can sit. He, it was a wonderful thing that uh, President of the SCA, Craig Howie, did, and I still honor him for that. Lovely. You've made it this far, probably because the topic resonated with you. If you're wondering what the show is all about, listen to the trailer at the start of the season and find out how this show is going to help you along your own path to purpose. You've stumbled on a project that is all about purpose. Find out why the guests are all so vastly different, but yet all have so much in common. Hop on board this journey with me, follow the Enrichment Project so that you don't miss out on a single episode and share it with, well, everyone. We are all looking for more meaning in our lives. If the show speaks to your identity or the identity of your brand, consider sponsoring a season. Let's make the circle bigger. Back to the episode and thanks for listening. And I think you were also quite instrumental in terms of the uh, the building of the constitution when it came to particular clauses in terms of uh, the community. Am I right in saying that? Sexual orientation. Right. Sexual orientation, Richard, yes. Simon Cordy made it possible for constitutional negotiators to be persuaded that uh, we should have an equality clause that included sexual orientation. Um, Edwin, I've got a question for you. As you read in my book, um, I survived cancer, a very rare form of cancer. I'm the 118th person ever in the history of the planet to survive this very rare form of cancer. I'm celebrating uh, a couple of months later, just trying to pull my life back together again. And uh, I'm woken at about half past two in the morning, three armed men come into my house and hold me up at gunpoint for two and a half hours. And at that moment in time, I, th I thought that I wasn't going to make it. They, nothing's ever happened. I've never heard anything. And I know that you have, in terms of your role right now, are very instrumental in terms of giving people who are incarcerated um, dignity and reintegrating them back into society so that it's not a punitive measure because I think in your words, I've read a lot that you've written about this, um, is that we're punishing people and they're just landing up straight back in the same place and we're just overcrowding prisons and uh, we've got an incredible high rate of people in prisons, but we're not helping them to change their lives. So from my, my point of view, and for, I think from a lot of South Africans, um, we have this we have this idea that there's unaccountability. You, you you spoke about corruption earlier. You've spoken a, a lot about um, our government, and so, so so I think for me, I can speak for me that I've got this feeling that people just aren't accountable, and and, and so many people get away with this thing, and crime is so rife. And if the people at the top aren't held accountable and just getting away with so much. Man, I would love it if those three people would land up in jail and they would, they'd be locked away from society and never be seen again. And in terms of 19, almost 20,000 people, and, and I know that you were very pro that, being uh, allowed out of prisons at the beginning of COVID for very, very good reasons. I've read 77 people in a, in a holding cell instead of 20 at uh, Sun City. And um, to, to me, I, 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 so, I, so the question I want to ask you is twofold. Number one, how have you managed over all of this time not to be emotionally sucked into the very negative aspect of the crime and the, the gruesome violence that you have seen and the, the corruption and there isn't enough evidence to prosecute people and that number one and how does that weigh up with your with your very very strong sense of purpose that says 
these people are also human beings. They, they deserve their rights, constitutional rights, to dignity and to be reintegrated and educated. If you can answer that for me, I'm going to let you go. Richard, it's a wonderful question, and I want to start by pausing with respect for the terror and the sense of life-ending violence that you experienced, the trauma uh, that was inflicted on you, because I think that was real. Uh, You were lucky to escape with your life. One of the terrible things that happens to us in South Africa, we are an extraordinarily violent uh, society, one of the highest rates of violence and murder and rape and assault uh, in the world. One of the things that happens to us is that I say to Richard, well, thank God you, you, you weren't actually injured. And we forget the trauma that you suffered. So I want to pause with that. The the second thing I want to say is that you've put your finger on it. There has to be accountability. And the third thing I want to say is that people like me, lawyers, judges, administration of justice officials, all of us have failed you and all the victims of violence. Uh, in South Africa. There's far too much violence. I also want to put in a quick square bracket, if I may, which is that President Ramaphosa's decision at the end of April this year, right into the fifth week of lockdown, he brought forward the parole dates of 19,000 offenders, all of them nonviolent. Now, robbery is a crime of violence. Mostly it's actual violence, Often it's the threat of violence. I don't know whether your three robbers in the middle of your night, but they terrified you. They must. That was a physical assault on you. The threat of violence was an actual physical assault. So it's, a, it, it's classified as a crime of violence. If they had been caught, they would not have been released under President Ramaphosa's uh, bringing forward of parole dates. The next thing I want to say, Richard, is a very important thing. How do we exact accountability. And the answer for me, and this is not making up for the grief that many people suffer through bereavement of family members, of rape, of maim, being maimed, of being shot. I I I mourn for that and I mourn for my part in that. The answer lies in improving the detective capacities to improving the follow-up capacities, they would have left fingerprints. You're implying to me that no one came and took fingerprints. We've got to improve the system where there's a national database of fingerprints. One of the cases right on our front page this week and last week has been the Senzamuiwa case, where they found the casings and they've now, five years later, this is a high-profile, sensational case of a famous soccer player shot in the living room of his girlfriend's uh, parents in, in, in Fosseros, if I understand the facts correctly. Five years later, they traced the casings to firearms that committed other. If the systems work, wow. we, it, it does not help yeah. to sentence a tiny handful of rapists, a tiny handful of murderers, a tiny handful of robbers to life imprisonment. That makes people like me and people like politicians feel better. But systemically, it does nothing. The one thing we know about penology and criminology, we know very little. Why certain societies are more violent, we know some answers, not all of them. 
Why do some people commit crime, others don't? Why are some crimes so terribly violent? The one thing we do know, Richard, and this is very important for all of us, is that what inhibits crime is the knowledge that you're going to cop it. You're going to be detected. Mm. You're going to be pursued. You're going to be hunted down. You're going to be tracked down. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be dragged before a court. You're going to be given a trial. And you're going to be sentenced. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. That's the important thing. That's the critical thing. Mm. If we told every single rapist, every single robber, in South Africa, that without any doubt, you will be hunted down and tried, and if found guilty, you will spend five years in jail. We would substantially inhibit rapes, robberies, murders, all violent crimes. So it's a very long answer, but it's one that I speak with passion. I'm going to come to the second part of your question now. We've got to get a motivated police force, an efficient functioning police force with proper systems. We've got to get systems that record every fingerprint, every DNA, so that they can quickly get a, 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 a rape woman's attacker's DNA. And then I want to come back to the question you asked, which is perhaps a good way to end because it's perhaps the most difficult question. I think personally that people who do terrible things should suffer terrible consequences. I don't think that long sentences begin to help with that. I think that prison is terrible. And I don't think that five years in prison is is a holiday. I think it is a terrible calamity to befall any human being. So I believe in, in the law of harsh consequences. I think some people, the dangerous people, the recidivists, the the un changeables, some of them should be locked up for life. And we should also have a good system that evaluates and appraises and categorizes those dangerous people. But to wrap this all up, Richard, I think that in our ineptitude in democratic South Africa, human rights South Africa, our fear of the rising crime as the police force has become more, less efficient, more degraded, less systemically capable and functional, we have Mm. located all our hatred and anger on prisoners, on those, the tiny minority that we do convict. So we're making a lot of terrible mistakes here, Richard. And when I talk about stigma, I talk about sex workers. I think they are the most stigmatized group, despised and stigmatized. I talk about LGBTIQ people, especially lesbian women in townships. I talk about cross-border migrants who are very stigmatized in in South Africa. And I also talk about prisoners. So in a way, my post-retirement job, which as you rightly say, is full of contradictions and complexities. In a way, it brings together much of my life. Absolutely. Um, That was very, very well answered. And thank you so, so much. If you're listening and you're interested, I would definitely suggest that you go and have a look at some of the work that Edwin is doing currently. Um, It's quite remarkable. And some of the stories coming out of the prisons even more so remarkable. So I know you're going to continue to make a massive impact as a defender of human rights. And lastly, from my side, just a very big thank you. And this is just slightly tongue in cheek, is that um, in terms of your uh, the Prince judgment that you were a part of. So um, and, and for those of you who don't know that that's to to scrap some of the cannabis uh, 
uh, laws. So for a lot of my cancer journey, I was I could have been imprisoned for for being a user. And my I always joke that in in two years ago, my drug dealer became my herbalist. Um, so thank you very much for making me a non-criminal in needing medicinal um, cannabis oil. Not um, not thank uh, you. not tongue in cheek at all, Richard. The war on drugs has been the most calamitous public policy mistake of the last hundred years. And one of the light points in this terrible American election, uh, in the throes of which we still are, is that a number of states, including conservative states, have voted to decriminalize certain categories. So let's end on that note of hope. And congratulations, Richard. Fantastic. And let's congratulate Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, who wrote that judgment. Another judgment I'm proud of. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Stunning. Thank you so, so much. I admire you. I respect you and look forward to uh, to everything that you still have in front of you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Richard. Goodbye. Thank you for staying right to the end of the episode and for joining me on the Enrichment Project. Before you go, please share this episode with your friends and your colleagues. They will thank you, I'm sure. Remember that you can catch each Path to Purpose episode by watching on YouTube or if you prefer, on your favorite podcast app. The link to my book, The Power of Purpose, is in the show notes. Please go and check it out. It's a rad account of my own story of purpose and resilience and my fight against brain cancer. I finished six full Ironman events, a number of multi-stage mountain bike races, nine Ironman 70.3 races, including the Ironman World Championships and a bunch of other endurance events all with stage 4 brain cancer because I wanted it that badly and getting to the finish line meant that much to me. As a professional inspirational speaker, business and life coach, author and storyteller, I'd love to add more value to you or your organization. Please find more details on my website, IamRichardWright.com and book me today for a live or virtual keynote, a masterclass, workshop or coaching session or please follow my journey on Facebook, I am Richard Wright, Twitter, The Right Rich, Instagram, I am Richard Wright or on LinkedIn. I'd love the opportunity to enrich your team. Thank you to the professional crew at Solid Gold Podcasts for the support, the talent, and the mad skills. And to Anna Hick for her creativity and genius video magic, thank you. You all rock.